Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. This week marks the beginning of the COP21 climate talks in Paris, which are part of the official UN Global Framework that has been trying and failing to reduce global carbon emissions for a couple decades now. For my first interview, I cut off with Oscar Reyes, a Barcelona-based policy researcher with the Institute for Policy Studies. Oscar focuses on climate and energy finance and has a long history of excellent critical writing and activism on climate issues. In the second part of the episode, I speak with Shannon Dobb, Communications Director for the CCPA British Columbia Office, on the CCPA's important new project that will trace the fossil fuel industry's networks of money and influence across Canada. First up, however, Oscar Reyes on the background to and what to expect from COP21. A lot of the rhetoric before this climate uh, meeting in Paris uh, that you're attending as well, um, at least in Canada, a lot of the rhetoric has been around the idea that you know we're all in this together, uh, the oil companies, regular people, everyone, everyone together. What's the reality of, of, of climate politics today? Is saying something like we're all in it together, does that even make any sense? So I think there's probably a couple of different questions here. I mean, I think that we are all in it together in the sense that we all need to act and act collectively um, to change policies, to change actually how the economy works and not just change a few light bulbs you know so it's actually there needs to be some kind of structural collective action to address climate change then we need to think okay what does actually addressing climate change mean and that means that means something quite a lot beyond the kind of let's agree to just do what we were doing anyway politics that is behind a lot of what goes on in the UN climate talks it means the transformed energy system designing cities differently so that we travel less far and use public transport stopping deforestation I mean, those are things that won't be driven by individual individual action. It, I mean, they're driven by policy, they're driven by regulation, but they're also driven by a different narrative about how we put together the world. Now, in practice, are we all acting together and are big companies and big oil doing their bit? Well, in short, no. I mean, we know that actually to address climate change, you probably need to leave about 80% of the found fossil fuel reserves in the ground rather than exploit those. Um, and that's just fundamentally at odds with the business model of the oil companies. What then concretely, I mean, I think I want to hit on the point that you mentioned at the, at the beginning that sort of the framework at these UN conferences might not be the right one. So what concretely is going to be debated and what are the limits of that? Yes. So what's happening in Paris is that they, they're trying to make a new treaty under the UN Climate Convention. Um, and so that convention of, it was of 1992 in that countries pledged to take action to avoid dangerous climate change and agreed actually that problem was mainly caused by developed countries and those countries also had the greatest capacity to pay for the response. So there's quite a lot of good things in or good framing in that 1992 climate convention. More strictly, what they're trying to do is, um, is make a, a protocol that will replace the 1997 Kyoto Protocol which set some emissions reduction limits for developed countries. And you might also say that actually what some of the countries here are trying to do is sort of water down or change that climate convention that I said was quite good. So there's actually quite a lot of politics about how they interpret that, how they want to go beyond it and so on. Now, the Kyoto Protocol itself, it, it put limits on emissions, but then it also brought in carbon markets, it brought in various kinds of loopholes that meant that 
that industrialized countries didn't have to do as much domestically as they should. And also the targets they set were arbitrary. Is this deal going to do better? Well, that's a matter for, de- for debate. I mean, my guess is probably not. I mean, certainly in the level of targets, what they decided is that actually everyone, there's not a, le- a setting of top-down targets for emissions, but everyone comes to the table with their own thing. So if you want to divide it into different pieces, I'd say the, the core of this agreement is going to be about mitigation. It's about reducing the greenhouse gas emissions that get put out there. Um, and the way they've gone about doing that is that every country has to just make a statement as to what it wants to do. And then we know that the collective action of countries is meant to restrict climate change to two degrees or one and a half degrees. And actually, what's promised is not going to meet that target. We're not going to see those pledges increased here in Paris. Um, the better case outcome would be to see that there would be some kind of mechanism for increasing those later. Another key piece is about finance. You know, addressing climate change is expensive. Um, and if you're going to encourage uh, countries in the global south to not follow the kind of fossil fuel driven development path that we did here in the EU or that Canada did, then there needs to be some cash resource to to help that that transition happen. And it's it's also true that climate change is expensive in terms of just adapting to the climate change that's already happening, because we know there's a 30 to 50 year time lag between you know, actions taken and then how that plays out in the climate. And so if you actually put this stuff together, I mean, there's estimates and they vary between you know, a few hundred billion per year to over a trillion US dollars per year, depending on which bits of investment you're counting and how you do the maths. Um, but under the UN Climate Convention, it's developed countries really that are supposed to pay for those additional costs. And we know really that they're not intending to. And what's happened since Copenhagen in 2009, which is kind of the, the main precursor to these talks, is that they've started talking about a figure of more like 100 billion US dollars a year. What we know as well is that they're not really anywhere near that. And and what's happening is a, is a debate on how you define what that 100 billion US dollars means. They'll count the cost of uh, commercial loans as a contribution, even though, you know, of course, there's returns on those loans and so on. And, and then there's other sort of calculations. I mean, the World Bank made one, which, you know, was very broad on its definition of what was climate action. So there's different ways of calculating it. But basically, the, the trick is that, I mean, to, to find ways of counting that you can come up to that 100 billion without doing too much additional. Because you know that just the flows of finance around the world and the flows of infrastructure investment are, are much greater than that number. So it's just really about how you count. Um, and then on the other side, I mean, you have the grouping of developing countries, which, I mean, the, the biggest grouping of those is the G77 plus China, which is about 134 countries. And they've said, well, no, that's not acceptable to definition to us. So we need to see if that, you know, where that argument goes. But that, that money piece is going to be a key part of the discussion. Is there any pressure from the countries of, of the global south this time around to really, you know, start shifting that rhetoric even at this official level and, and the kinds of policies and two, I guess, other than any sort of interest in doing that, which I think we've kind of seen in, in other rounds, is there any actual force that can be put behind this? So, I mean, there'll be a lot of, there'll be a lot of talk about, I mean, and a lot of rhetoric about that developed countries need to do more, there needs to be a, a big element of public finance, there needs to be you know, and, and some brinksmanship. I mean, the talks always go to the last moment and beyond. My guess is in practice, they, I mean, they'll come to some kind of watered down or vague agreement. I mean, what happens is that when it gets to the crunch, you'll have the a lot of diplomatic pressure on the G77 and China. And, you know, it's the old, I mean, the, the EU does a lot of this work. They use the old colonial divide and rule tactics and, and you know, will offer some trade concessions to one country on this thing. 
um, setting to withhold aid from another country on that thing and try to kind of draw sufficient wedges that actually there is no unified um, developing country position. And obviously, actually, the interests of those countries individually are quite different anyway. So they're, they're kind of working on a on a field that, that is open to actually kind of driving people apart. So I think that when it comes to it, I mean, there's not going to be a... Um, there's not going to be a strong coherent push in that, although I'd like to be proven wrong. There was that U.S. and China agreement and what China's role is at, you know, at, at these kinds of big, big events, to what extent they're still tied to like the, you know, where where they fit in, which way they're pushing, because they're on the one hand, um, you know, they're, they're appeasing their population sort of with because of all the pollution, all the smog, and, the, and they're actually building out a large amount of infrastructure. On the other hand, you know, they're a huge, huge consumer of fossil fuels at the same time. Um, and they also have this role where they're, you know, clearly still a developing country, but more and more moving into one that, say, has a bit more responsibility. And, like, you know, it's easy to also pin, it's easy for the really developed countries to pin stuff on them as well. I mean, I think, you, I mean, the way you, I mean, you captured it quite well. And on the one side, I mean, you could say, okay, China has peaked its coal use, it's importing, it's importing less coal, it's, it's, it's got, quite a massive set of programs to build renewable energy, for example. On the other side, it's still a massive and increasing user of fossil fuels. Um, there's huge problems with local air pollution. Then in the context of these talks, I mean, it's also, I'd say, it's playing a, it plays different games at the same time. On the one side, I mean, China will champion the existing international architecture of the talks, this you know, common but differentiated possibility, um, differentiated responsibilities piece that basically says that developed countries have to do their share because obviously that's in their in, in China's interest to strengthen that and there's an element of developing world solidarity in that but at the same time I mean China's interests are aligned well, I mean of its own interests it's also aligned with the the BRICS and those diverge from a lot of other developing countries too um, and we saw that in, in in Copenhagen where the BRICS and the US kind of came up with something that left all the groups out in the cold I mean so we see both of these Chinas at the talks and um, it's yeah I guess it's not clear which of those aspects will have the, the upper hand. And, and I mean, you mentioned also the arbitrariness of all of this, um, of the figures and their sort of gross insufficiency. I mean, I recently read in, you know, in Nature, um, even of all places, that two degrees Celsius warming scenarios are farcical, you know, they called it, or and completely detached from political reality. What what would need to actually happen to get us off these paths that seem to be, you know, pointing more and more towards sort of runaway warming, where even even the arbitrary targets that are set are, you know, seemingly hopeless? So there's a debate within the talks between whether you should have your global target as one and a half degrees warming or two degrees warming, which is, a, in the end, it's a debate between two things that are not going to happen. Um, and then you have this, um, I mean, if you actually... but Taking the two degree target, I mean, it's not impossible. Um, I mean, it's not technically impossible to get there, but it would require a massive effort on energy efficiency because we know that's the sort of quickest way of kickstarting um, the change. And then actually, I mean, there were some clever bods at the IEA, the International Energy Agency, who worked out that pretty much by 2017, um, all of the, if you take into account all of the um, emissions that are kind of locked into the new infrastructure that's being built in the world, then there's no, there's going to be no real room for building additional power plants, factories, or other infrastructure, unless it's zero carbon, if we're going to actually keep within the two degree limit. So that's the scale of the challenge. 
And then if you look at what's pledged by countries in these talks, I mean, you're, you're going to overshoot that. And I mean, the uh, United Nations Environment Programme, UNEP, they, I mean, they do a report on the emissions gap. And they say that based on the current pledges, I mean, we're on a path of somewhere between two and a half and five degrees of global warming. There's so much, but maybe you want to just speak, yeah, speak to this relationship between security and climate, especially, uh, I mean, in light of the in light of the Paris bombings and in in light of everything that's sort of kind of this confluence of events in Paris in the last just few few weeks, including this summit. First, I'd say the immediate situation in Paris is one where the state of emergency has been used to clamp down on climate dissent, and we've seen marches banned, although we know that. You know, football matches and Christmas markets can continue. Um, we've seen climate activists put under house arrests. Um, they've raided art spaces. It's a climate of, of repression, and it's using the security crisis as an opportunity to close down alternative stories, I guess, to the officially sanctioned version that the French government wants to pursue. So that's one piece. Then there's a broader question as to what climate change does for security you know, and how, I guess, the CIA and militaries are planning for that. And so, yeah, for that, actually, I mean, there is a new book coming out, which, which I contributed to um, from the Transnational Institute called Secure and the Dispossessed. And it looks at that question. And I mean, it says, you know, one of the things is, is that national security planners are treating climate change as a threat multiplier that worsens and spreads conflict. And so they're saying, well, we better prepare for tougher border regimes. And, you know, I've seen that already. So a few years ago, I, I was looking at some of the kind of adaptation for climate change funding. Um, and I was seeing that Italy was spending money to buy Coast Guard patrol boats for the Mediterranean to bolster Frontex under the claim of adaptation funding. And so we expect a lot more things like that, um, because ultimately, I mean, the type of security they're pushing is one that sees security not as human well-being, but in its kind of militaristic, hard security version. And then I guess the other piece is the question of just what's happening in Syria right now. And, you know, we know that that situation wasn't caused by climate change, but at the same time, it's, I mean, it's, it's clear that, I mean, the extreme drought in Syria um, in the late past last decade was one of the background conditions for the conflict. And that now when you have um, ISIS, I mean, we know that was born out of the Iraq war, which was an oil war, and it's been fueled by Saudi extremism, which is bankrolled by oil. And that actually ISIS makes most of its money out of legal oil sales. You, know, you, can't, you can't smuggle um, wind and sunbeams. So, you know, we've actually got a name that that's actually also a, a conflict that is about oil in some level. And that grouping is is benefiting from the oil economy. So I'd say that's also the sort of what we need to sort of put in our messaging here and fight back against. It seems a bit of a, you know, fatalistic question, but what's, what's a sort of realistic best case coming out of Paris? If, if the talks themselves are insufficient to such a to such a degree what's sort of the best case coming out of paris uh maybe even outside the talks okay so the, i mean i mean i guess first on the on the inside the kind of best case realistic case or the least bad case um if you want to put it that way is probably something that's relatively good in finance so it would re- clearly reject this where they're saying well industrialized countries don't need to do much more than what they're doing already it would be what an agreement that didn't simply sideline the need for new initiatives on adaptation, so basically measures to help uh, countries in the global south um, adapt to climate change that's already happening. There would be a strong pre-2020 aspect, because what happened in setting up these talks is that basically this is meant to replace the Kyoto Protocol, but between an agreement to kind of set up this strand of talks in, in the end of 2011 um, and 2020, 
there's just a big gap where not a whole lot is mandated at the international level. So there is a strand of the talks around this pre-2020 ambition, and it's not very active. But if there were initiatives coming out of that, for example, around renewable energy feed-in tariffs on a global level or other kinds of um, initiatives to encourage renewable energy, for example, that would be a, that would be a relatively stronger outcome in that strand. And then on the, the big kind of mitigation piece, the big emissions reduction piece, then some kind of sort of ratchet review mechanism that could upgrade grade commitments in future in line with climate science or encourage that that happens would be at the better end of the spectrum. I mean, alternatively, you might say that the better case outcome was, okay, the, the conversation has gotten so bad that the better case would be some kind of a collapse and hope that that concentrates minds for a better outcome later. Or more realistically still, yeah, just a, a not, worst worst case so one of the aspects of the un climate convention is this idea of of the common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities of countries basically it means that actually some countries can do more some countries do less and there needs to be this financial transfer mechanism there needs to be an initiative taken by industrialized countries and there's an effort to tear that up so if it doesn't entirely tear that up then that's the least worst case on the on the outside of of things i mean i'd say that most i mean Quite a lot of NGOs, and then obviously more social movements, are already looking beyond Paris. Like people are talking about the road through Paris and not the road to Paris. I mean, I'd make exceptions there for you know, like there's there's Avaz and it's kind of you know, it's got a unique brand of clickbait, but it doesn't actually mobilise a lot of people on the ground. And then there are the big conservation NGOs who have a more kind of conservative take. But I mean, I was I've, I've been quite encouraged by some of the mobilizing messages, I mean, including of organizations like 350, and then they're kind of being more attentive to social movements and saying, well, look, a couple of things. One is that actually there's going to, there's supposed to be a mobilization on the 12th. And I mean, given the situation in Paris, we need to see how that's going to happen exactly still. Um, but the idea of putting something there at the end of the talks is to say, okay, let's have the last world word and let's say what's on our agenda. And what's on our agenda needs to be some kind of just transition to a different kind of economy. It needs to be 100% 100% renewable energy, it needs to be a, a divestment from fossil fuels. So there needs to be a different, just a different imagination as to what is possible to actually address climate change. That was climate policy researcher Oscar Reyes. Next up, my conversation with Shannon Dobb of the CCPABC on that organization's new project that will follow and shine a light on the money of the fossil fuel industry in Canada. I began by asking Shannon to describe the project. Yes, it's a very exciting uh, new initiative. And, you know, we're taking a look at this because the fossil fuel industry in Canada and, and in the West here where, where I'm based and, and where our partners are based, uh, and by that I mean the oil, gas, and, and coal companies uh, and, and the companies involved in financing those, uh, that sector, have really tremendous economic uh, clout and a great deal of political influence. And, you know, here we stand at this very important and pivotal moment in terms of dealing with climate change and thinking about how to make the transition to a zero-carbon economy and society over the coming few decades. And that's a, that's a major challenge. And yet uh, we really um, lack a fully transparent and systematic picture of exactly how the companies involved in extracting the carbon resources that we need to look at shifting away from are uh, influencing not only our political uh, discussions and decision-making, but just also the broader debate that we have about these kinds of issues. Maybe it's too rarely repeated a fact that, you know, the fossil fuel extraction industry is actually relatively small. 
relative to the size of the Canadian economy, and and especially the tar sands. You know, we hear the statistic they they account for less than two percent of GDP, but this in some ways doesn't jive with sort of the outside inf- outsize influence of the industry, both like you said on policy and on the public imagination. What what drives this sort of disconnect? Well, that's an excellent point, um, and 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 as we at the CCPA have pointed out, and others that the fossil in- fuel industries uh, are not, in fact, um, as quite the job creators that you would think from looking at the public, um, you know, the public debate and discussion, where our economic interests and our economic future have really been very closely linked to, very much to an extraction-oriented vision of economic development. And we see that here in BC as well, of course, where development of a, of a liquefied natural gas or LNG export industry is uh, essentially the number one economic development strategy of the provincial government, but very much at odds with our climate goals. Uh, and we have seen recently uh, the province appointed a climate action team that included some, you know, quite a few uh, representatives from industry and some real uh, heavy hitters, such as the CEO of the BCLNG Alliance. Uh, and you see it in, uh, as well at the uh, global uh, climate negotiations uh, that kicked off today in Paris, where you see the companies, the very companies who are so closely involved in these industries really at the table uh, and really making uh, the case that they their interests need to be front and center. Uh, And certainly, um, it it makes it very difficult for us as citizens and social movements and people who are trying to really wrestle with the transition that we need to make. It makes it very difficult to really uh, have a level playing field in democratic terms. Uh, And certainly, the, the influence or the sort of very uh, primary position that these companies and lobby groups like, you know, we've seen some big players in Canada like CAP, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, who have very privileged access to uh, policymakers, particularly at the federal level, but also provincially, uh, and who, you know, who really are able to exert quite an enormous amount of influence and power and certainly disproportionate, I, I would agree, but, uh, to their economic to the side, you know, to their economic contribution. But, but nevertheless, they they do, they do wield a tremendous amount of economic power as well, and that's part of what we'll be looking at through the project. You mentioned, before, before you get back to the mechanics of the project, you mentioned Paris. How have these fossil fuel networks, sort of as an example, how have they impacted the Canadian position going into the summit? Um, in a way, you know, it's sort of a question like, what is the sort of problem that you're diagnosing here? Well, it'll be interesting to see exactly what happens uh, in terms of how the talks unfold and the role that Canada plays. Certainly, the new federal government is broadcasting a lot of positive signals about wanting to see Canada return to uh, at least a, a reasonably uh, progressive position in, in, you know, in events like this in the climate negotiations, um, taking a broader, a broader uh, delegation uh, to Paris that includes provincial leaders and uh, people from other political parties. Those are certainly positive signs. Uh, at the same time, the talks themselves are very heavily influenced and dominated by the fossil fuel industry, uh, and we've seen some really great analysis uh, coming out of groups like the Corporate uh, Europe Observatory and the group uh, Corporate Accountability International, who have really been documenting the many ways that the, the tentacles of corporate uh, influence are, are all over those uh, talks. And so you see, for example, you know, business trade fairs happening throughout and business-sponsored 
uh, events, receptions, and socials happening throughout those talks. You see corporate executives participating in some of the delegations. You see uh, a whole variety of ways that uh, some subtle and some less subtle that, that the very companies who have been profiting so handsomely from uh, from extracting and burning fossil fuels are themselves uh, have a very prominent seat at the table at these talks. So uh, it's difficult to say exactly how much progress we'll see there and what role uh, Canada will play. But certainly, we know that the new federal government uh, does have um, its own ties to the fossil fuel industry. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of optimism about the kind of role that they're going to play in terms of climate policy. But, you know, we just saw last month that during the election campaign that uh, we had Dan Gagne resigning uh, as co-chair of the Liberal uh, campaign after it was revealed that he, in fact, had been advising TransCanada uh, on how to lobby a new uh, government using the uh, inside information that he had access to as campaign co-chair uh, and advising them on how to lobby in favor of the proposed Energy East tar sands pipeline. So, uh, you know, I think we need to be realistic here. Yeah, and the delegation's going with, with the old targets as well, right? With with the old conservative targets. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then we and we heard the statement last week supporting the U.S. position that the the climate target shouldn't be um, binding. I want to get back to the project, and I mean, one thing is, that, you know, in Canada, there's not so much of brown envelopes being pa- passed under tables, and and this kind of open open corruption, um, which in many ways makes a project like this much more difficult because these are things that. You know, as you've been saying, there's sort of influence and networks of people revolving doors here and there. What are some of the mechanics of the project and what's going to come out of it? Well, we're going to be taking a look at four uh, key areas over the coming six years. So, first of all, we're going to take a systematic look at how the carbon extractive uh, or oil, gas, and, and coal industries are organized in Western Canada. So which companies are involved, who runs them, who owns them, and how they connect to the broader international uh, network of companies and cor- of corporations uh, and, ca- and capital. And then we're going to be doing an analysis of the sector's influence on public debates and policymaking. So the first piece is sort of more about their economic power and how they're organized, and the second piece is about you know, how they go about deliberately uh, through different kinds of campaigns and lobbying activities, uh, trying to seek uh, access to government decision-making, to political parties, uh, and, and how they go about, uh, you know, the term social license has become quite popular recently, so how they go about seeking social license through PR campaigns and marketing and advertising campaigns. Uh, and then third, we'll be taking a look at some of the more um, contentious flashpoints, like the expansion uh, or development of new mines or pipelines or export facilities. Uh, certainly, we know there's no shortage of them when we think about uh, the controversy around uh, around the Kinder Morgan pipeline or the proposed Enbridge pipeline, which now seems to be dead in the water. Uh, but we'll be, there's many other examples as well around specific proposals for LNG facilities, for example, in British Columbia or uh, in Saskatchewan. Uh, I think Saskatchewan is sort of the lesser known of the three uh, provinces in terms of its uh, oil and coal industries, but there's uh, quite a bit uh, that's been going on in recent years there in terms of shale oil exploration and, uh, and ongoing uh, significant coal industry. So we'll be taking a look at some of the some of the flashpoints where we see 
proposals for new or expanded industry happening, and how communities are responding and how social movements are responding, how governments are dealing with those proposals, uh, and looking at how uh, corporate influence plays out in those decision-making uh, and social processes. And then finally, we'll be uh, producing and developing uh, an open source, publicly accessible corporate database, uh, along with a training program for uh, the public, for citizens, for civil society groups, where all of this information, uh, in particular, uh, all of the information about the different corporate players and who's involved will be uh, compiled in a place, one place that people can access relatively easily and start to themselves uh, put together their own uh, networks and maps of, of you know, the who's who in these industries. And maybe finally, what's sort of the, the end game of this project? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a ways off, but what do you hope to achieve? Is this basically this kind of tool for greater democratic oversight? Is this a means of empowering social movements? Is this something in a way that can go beyond just a kind of research project? Absolutely. It's very much a transparency-oriented uh, project. And so the research is really uh, about giving people a better picture of exactly um, you know, of, a, of an important area of our economy and democracy that I think there is uh, anecdotal knowledge of, perhaps, but not a complete systematic picture. So it's really also about leveling the democratic playing field, you know, as we uh, go through making uh, key decisions about, not just about fossil fuel resources, but also about our climate policies and about our environmental future. It's about putting... Uh, greater more information and, and, and tools into people's hands and into the hands of social movements and civil society groups, First Nations and Aboriginal groups, to be able to have better oversight of the companies involved and the ways that they are going about trying to influence the decisions that we make collectively that affect all of us. All right. I'll have to do another interview once, once, this, uh, once this is up and running. Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. That was Shannon Dobb of the CCPABC. That's all for this week. Talk to you again in two weeks.